We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent and interesting science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined in the studio with my co-host Kelsey Pickard. Hello. Who else are we joined with? Uh, we have a new co-host, Ollie Dove. Hi there. So how are you doing, Ollie? I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to join the team. That's great. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself because this is your first episode with us? Sure. I have just begun a PhD at IMAS, the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies here in Hobart, and I am studying the foraging ecology of three mesopredators, which are fur seals, little penguins, and short-tailed shearwaters. Why are they called something predators, mesopredators? Ah, mesopredators, because... They're big and furry? Yeah, and they are. Uh, mesopredators are, so in the food chain, the mesopredators are the ones in the middle. So you have your apex predators, such as sharks, and the mesopredators are also predators, but they can also be predated on. Ah, oh, okay, so they're like things coming at you from all angles, pretty much. Yeah, they have to <laughs> hunt and they get hunted. It's the worst of both worlds. Oh. Yeah, that does sound pretty challenging but hey there we go well I'm looking forward to doing an episode with you on that someday but today we are talking all about lizards with our expert guest Thomas Botterill James but we're going to call you Tom isn't that right Tom yeah Tom Tom's perfect Tom works so I'm going to hand over to Ollie to introduce Tom in a bit more detail Hi, Tom. Now, Tom is a postdoctoral researcher studying the behaviour of lizards and how the environment can affect their relations with one another within a family unit. So, Tom, can you give us a quick outline of the work you do and what aspects of lizard behaviour it is that particularly interests you? Yeah, so what I've, what I've looked at with these lizards is trying to get at some insights into the mechanisms that lead to the evolution of family living in animals. So the reasons that I focused on these lizards is that they have really simple forms of sociality, not quite as complicated as what we might see in ourselves or, or primates or some bird species. So by looking at these lizards and doing some experiments and studying them in the field, try and get a bit of an idea about what environmental conditions lead them to be less social or more social and, yeah, just get some insights into the how and why animal sociality evolved. I'd never really thought of lizards being social. So what kind of um, social interactions and family networks do lizards have? Yeah, so a lot of people don't, don't really think about reptiles and lizards as being social. Uh, so that's what makes these guys quite a good study system. Typically they aren't social. Um, so for the, for the few species that do actually display any form of sociality, they are really good for getting insights into how you get that initial step. Um, from no no sociality and no family living to very rudimentary forms of family living. That's what these guys display. Um, they don't have parental care as we kind of conceptualise it. You know, they're not not going out foraging for their kids, uh, for parents, but what they do is they tolerate uh, offspring hanging around in their home raids for a couple of years. 
but they don't keep their kids out of home too early. And so, so the offspring can get benefits in terms of increased growth and, and less pressure from predators. And this is, this is a form of sociality that we think sort of represents the early stages in the evolution of more complex, complex family life. Do parents get any benefit of keeping their offspring around? Because obviously less advanced creatures, if that's the right word, would they do kick their young out, don't they? But, and then more advanced ones, you know, even go out and forage for them or feed them. So is there a benefit to yeah. the lizard parents in, you know, keeping their offspring around or is are they just doing it out of the goodness of their heart? <laughs> yeah. yeah, altruistic lizards. So it's uh, one way to think about it is not so much in terms of direct benefits. So uh, what we find is that the, the parents, they don't actually have any really cost of parental care. Um, as I said, they're, they're kind of very basic forms of parental care. So what happens is they're not expending energy trying to get food for their offspring. They're basically just hanging about and letting their offspring have some of their resources on their territory. Um, and then, then the parents might benefit in terms of they have increased production of the number of number of babies who live to go on and reproduce. So the way to think about it is not so much any benefits to the parents in terms of their own health or well-being, but they're getting really inclusive benefits by producing more more offerings. Ah, so it's all about the age-old species survival and what's yeah. better for, yeah. you know, what's better for the overall reproductive and survival. That's great. So over to you, Ollie, for the next question. Tom, you mentioned that you study these lizards in the field. So what sort of methods do you use to investigate their family life? Yeah, so one of the key things that's really useful, uh, a key trait of these lizards that makes them really useful to study is that they do quite well in sort of semi-natural captive uh, scenarios. So one of the key things, some of the key experiments I did throughout my PhD uh, was capturing lizards from the field, finding finding mothers and, and uh, fathers with pairs, and then bringing them back to, we've got this facility at the University of Tasmania where essentially we have these big outdoor enclosures covered by bird netting. So the way we study them is we introduce them into these enclosures and basically watch them and record social interactions. So how, how tight these monogamous pair bonds are between mothers and fathers. So we look at their home ranges, we record aggressive interactions or or by converse that they bask together that they have you know really really tolerate each other which is a sign of being social and what we can do is we can manipulate environmental conditions in these enclosures and see well how does how does the relationship between lizards change as we change say the availability or structure of habitat or how much food is available to them or whether it's you know hotter or colder so that's really the key method which allows us to say something about the evolution of family life in these guys because we can actually manipulate it in these, as I said, semi-natural conditions and see what happens. So, Tom, you said earlier that lizards were a good species to do this research in because there's not very much known about them, but also they're kind of like at this middle range of they do support their offspring a little bit, but not too yeah. much. Um, I just wondered, you know, does that mean that you didn't really have a baseline of what their social interactions are? Was this like one of the first descriptors? And then like, did you need to establish just what they do normally and naturally and then manipulate that to understand that further? Like what is kind of the steps that you need to take when you know so little about a species? Yeah, yeah. well, so for these guys, we actually do know a little bit. 
one of my supervisors during my PhD had done a little bit of work with these guys and what he noted was that there was actually a lot of variation between families and how social they are. So kind of had this system characterised in terms of when you some families stick together and the offspring stay around for a couple of years, whereas others the offspring get kicked out of home really early. And in some pairs, uh, the mother and the father, they stay together for a long time uh, so they don't divorce. And actually we find that their divorce rates are um, less than a lot of human uh, populations, which is uninteresting because they're good at sticking together. But then some of the lizard pairs do develop really quickly. So kind of have this system known in terms of the forms of sociality that they have, but uh, didn't really know going into some of these studies what explained the variation between families and whether or not they were social. So, so that was really the key of some of these experiments, is saying, well, why do these guys stick together but these guys don't have sociality? And then from that, you know, you can get some broader insights to say, well, maybe generally under certain conditions, they persist, will have more lizards being social and that then that goes on for generations, you eventually get, you know, transitions between different forms of sociality. That's great. Thanks, Tom. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned for just a little bit more lizard goodness in the next section. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about the home life of lizards. My name is Kelsey Pickard, and I'm joined with uh, Neve Chapman and our special guest, um, Tom Botterill-James. We also have a new co-host, Ollie Dove. Tom, your research involves looking into the evolution of family life by looking at external factors and how they affect the behaviour of lizards. What species of lizard did you use in this investigation, and how did you go about choosing them? Yeah, that's a great question. So the species of lizard, the Latin name, the, the technical scientific name is Agonia whiteii, uh, but the common name is white skink. So these guys live throughout southeast Australia and particularly in Tasmania, we tend to find them around the east coast. And so Orford, all the way up to Bishnow and beyond, they're quite common. You won't really see them that often in your garden compared to some of the smaller little brown skinks. But these guys, as I said, they are quite quite populous up the east coast and that's where we capture our individuals to study. And the reason they do make such a good study species or the kind of work that we do trying to get at the factors underlying family life that they really do exhibit a lot of variation in the social behaviour they exhibit. So by looking at what external factors explain that variation, we can get it to some insights into how different environmental factors might have driven the initial evolution of sociality in animals. So I have a really basic question. How do you catch these lizards? Do you set traps and how do you know where to look? Yeah, that's a good question. So we don't actually set traps. We go out fishing for lizards. Uh, and so, so the way to catch a lizard is to use what, what we call as uh, hookless fishing. So we get a, get a rod and to the end of that we tie a little worm. And the lizards, for all their really clever, relatively clever social behaviour, they're not too bright when they see a human standing in front of them with a rod with a worm on the end of it. So if they see the worm, they'll go for it. And when they bite on, we flick them up in the air and basically sit underneath with a bucket and, oh my and hope that you get your lizard in the bucket and then you've caught yourself a lizard. Do you have to do like lizard fishing training where you've got to like practice with a pretend lizard with the flicking technique, the flick and catch? Is that like yeah. PhD training 101? 
Absolutely. Before you get your degree, you've got to got to sit there karate kid style and some <laughs> tips from the old masters. <laughs> oh, that sounds really, really interesting. I'm sure you got some funny looks when you're out in the field going down, catching a few lizards. One of our study sites is actually next to a dam. So there's a big rocky wall where a bunch of lizards hang out. And every now and again, you get, get some old bloke riding past fishing for trout. And you get some pretty weird looks when you're sitting at the side of a dam fishing amongst the rocks. <laughs> Tom, how do you ensure that the lizards that you catch are one family unit? Have you ever accidentally caught sort of one from two different couples? Yeah, so one of the things that really characterises this group and their, and their family groups is that they have really discrete burrow systems. So that's back to that earlier question, how do we know how to look for them? Basically, there's these small burrows that they kind of hang out with. They like to burrow quite deep. You know, it's a predator avoiding. And they also have usually a couple of rocks around that burrow where they can bask in the middle of the day. So, so if you see a pair together in the same burrow um, over a period of a couple of days, you know that they are a monogamous pair. So by I'm assuming you're not just like camping out watching lizards going to and from their burrows with binoculars. <laughs> yeah. So how are you like capturing that information? Are you using cameras and having to watch a lot of lizard footage or um, like how do you know if they're in the same burrow? Yeah, well, it's usually if you go out catching, uh, as I said, you go sort of scope it out. And if you see, you see basically they look they look fairly similar to one another, but if you see a pair of individuals in the same burrow and there's not a third lizard hanging about there, you know that the two lizards there, if it's a male and a female, uh, are a pair. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting, the nuances of... Uh lizard catching so are you likely to uh, would you know if you're out hiking or anything would any of us be likely to see a, a white skink lizard yeah yeah potentially you might see them as i said up along the east coast of Tassie, they're quite quite common if you're in a sort of dry dry eucalypt forest area and got some rocks and a bit of sand where you might be able to burrow if you're a lizard you'll probably see a couple out on a warm sunny day that's what i always say if it's a if it's a nice day for me to be out in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and a Hawaiian shirt, and, and I need my sun hat on. The lizards are probably probably out and about enjoying themselves. If it's a bit cold and windy, you probably won't see them on your hike. I don't really like the wind or the rain, um, being cold blooded. But a lot of a lot of places in Hobart as well. Sometimes you see them up at the main. They're quite common. Um, but generally, for the most part, down here, the thing you're most likely to see the common brown garden skink. Uh, they're a little bit more common. Tom, you mentioned before that the divorce rate in the lizards is actually quite high compared to human population. What other outcomes from your study surprised you? Uh, oh, sorry, so they actually have a divorce rate which is uh, really low. So they actually stay together um, oh, quite well. Yeah. So that was actually a surprising finding um, from some of the field work that I was a little bit involved in, but mainly my supervisor did, that found that I think it was, a, it was something uh, above sort of three quarters of lizards stick together uh, just about for life. And in the majority of cases where you think they might divorce, it's usually just because one of the lizards has died. Uh, so they actually put a lot of human societies to shame. They, they've got the secret uh, ingredients to stick together. And we think that might be because 
the habitat often is quite dispersed. And so if you, if you divorce with your partner and try and trade up, um, try and look for something a bit different, often that can be a costly strategy because you'll move out and you won't be able to find, find another burrow with a, with a lady or a man lizard to hook up with. So they actually have really low divorce rates compared to, compared to a lot of human societies which is quite an interesting finding really. I feel like it's quite a different comparison comparing a human divorce rate to <laughs> a lizard <laughs> divorce rate. Yeah. Um, humans have a lot of other issues <laughs> going yeah, on yeah, in their lives um, but what kind of results can you really interpret? So we're talking about family dynamics and lizards yep. and how that might relate to more complicated species even like up to humans. What kind of in- results can we interpret from lizards to higher order species? Yeah, it's a little bit hard to say, um, for instance, that one process that leads to more, more social living in a lizard will also lead to more social living in a, in a different type of animal because there are you know, obviously differences between them in terms of their intrinsic biology and, you know, obviously they might expect they react different to different environmental conditions. But we can say something about what conditions we think might have initially supported that evolution of basic family life to then create some sort of platform or some form of uh, sociality that then different conditions might drive the system to further sociality, um, which is not something that I've looked too much in. But with the lizards, it seems really that clumped uh, habitats or sort of resource uh, resource things, things like food and spots to bask, leads to more sociality. So you've got got uh, these resources really clumped together and it's a far way away to more resources. What that leads to is lizards have to kind of stick together and then tolerate each other. So habitat availability and structure seems to be a big thing that drives that initial evolution in lizards. And then then for other other animals moving on from that, you might expect different conditions might then play a different role in the evolution of uh, sort of more complex social behaviours and family structures. That's really cool. That's really great stuff that you've been working on. Where do you see your research going on in the future? What are the next steps for you? Yeah, well, for the lizards, I've uh, kind of moved research tack a little bit and looking at biodiversity and how that's affected by land use change. Uh, but in this field of sort of behavioural ecology and animal sociality, a lot of work I think needs to be done on these kind of lesser known species or they're not quite so sexy species. Lizards don't quite have the same attraction as say, a lot of, uh, sort of interesting bird species or, or primates are often, you know, targeted for social behaviour research. But I think the more we look into these types of animals with simple forms of sociality, we'll really get a better picture of the factors that drive that initial uh, step in the evolution towards a more complex sociality. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and in just a moment, we'll be wrapping up this episode about lizards and putting it in context of the future work and implications. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about uh, lizards with Tom Botterill-James from the University of Tasmania. Um, I'm joined by Neve Chapman and Ollie Dove. Given your results on how the environment affects the way lizards are interacting with each other, Tom, to what extent do you think climate change could affect this in the future? Yes, yeah, so that's a really great question. And that's something which 
uh, I haven't explicitly sort of focused on in my research, but a research lab has started going in that direction a little bit. So that's a spot to watch for sure. So we've actually got a targeted experiment going at the moment out of those facilities I described earlier uh, at the University of Tasmania where we've essentially shaded some of these enclosures with slightly transparent cloth to kind of create different microclimates at different temperature and also things like humidity to kind of see how climatic conditions affect the way these lizards interact with each other. So there are different kind of hypotheses. One might be because they are cold-blooded is that when the, when the weather sort of gets a bit, a bit hotter, they might interact in different ways because they have different activity periods. Uh, but as I said, it's a little bit unsure. As to, we don't really have any strong hypotheses either way, how it might affect stuff, but they are, they are kind of questions that we're looking at and seeing what happens when we change change the climate that these lizards are subjected to. Tom, you've spoken about how your work involves catching wild lizards and housing them in outdoor enclosures back here in Hobart. In future studies, do you think it would be feasible to conduct a similar study um, of the lizard behaviour in their natural habitat, or would that be too impractical with such a small animal? No, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a great idea for a study and something something I looked at doing my PhD, but given sort of time constraints and the logistics of it, uh, the time frame of that study wasn't suitable. But definitely something that we've got open as an option, which is to sort of go out in the field at different sites uh, that differ in sort of environmental conditions and basically do some proper natural history studies where you, you know, get your camouflage suit on and go out with a pair of binoculars and, and watch the lizards in the habitat. Because uh, they're really easy to, to mark because they shed their scales uh, every now and again. You can, you can put cloth tape on them, which doesn't affect the lizard at all, and you can write little numbers so you can keep track of who's who in the wild and, and essentially just record interactions between them. You can record from observations where their home range is and how many, you know, you can do things like social network analysis to see how many, you know, friends different lizards have and how that changes with different conditions. So... It's definitely the next step of this study, or maybe not the next step, but a complementary step to targeted experiments to see how these things actually play out in the wild, to see if our, our findings from these targeted experiments play out across different populations of lizards. I have a bit of a left field question, Tom, for us to finish up on. What role do lizards play in the broader ecosystem? So you've been talking about you know, that they might be impacted by climate, that their social behaviours are impacted by basking and food availability, but it's likely that, you know, uh, the safety to do that and things like that are probably impacted by what they're exposed to. And I don't know very much about lizards and how they interact in their environment. So I wondered if you could comment on, you know, are they hunted? Are they, are they what do they eat? Like, how do they contribute broadly to the ecosystem? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so they might... They might not have quite a bigger impact in the ecosystem as say something like a top predator. So, so it's been a bit of work done at the University of Tasmania looking at how how removing Tasmanian devils for the uh, facial disease might affect smaller kind of marsupials and little furry things because removing a devil creates opportunities for feral cats to come in and that creates different uh, predation pressures on a whole range of animals throughout the ecosystem. Lizards are a little bit different because they're a bit lower down on the food chain. They're sort of snacking on bugs and nibbling at grass. Um, but they are, they are key prey items for, 
things like kookaburras and sort of larger birds. So you might expect maybe not a huge impact, but, but some impact at least on on the things that actually eat the lizards which are those more birds if they want to you know, decrease in size in the huh. population. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of like somebody who's sitting lower down on that predator scale. Well, that's all we've yeah. got time for today. Thanks so much to everyone. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content. Hope you enjoyed the show. I've certainly learned heaps about lizards that I did not know before. And uh, <laughs> thanks, Tom, for being an excellent guest. No worries. Thanks for listening to all my lizard research, guys. <laughs> that's great. And thank you to Kelsey Picard and Ollie Dove, my co-hosts. My name's Neve Chapman. If you enjoyed the show, please get in touch with us on social media. Search That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 